Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we look at Trump's delayed State of the Union address. How did he do? Also, what can we gather from Trump's comments on the USMCA trade deal? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get into what happened last night. The State of the Union, which was obviously delayed by a week because of the uh, the partial government shutdown in the states, but uh, all was all last night good. They got the president in there, and of course uh, there was the bipartisan attempt to try to make uh, this sound as if you know we all need to work together, and it started out in that way. Victory is not winning for our party. Victory is winning for our country. Uh, that started off in a very bipartisan, uh, collaborative tone, uh, kind of straight a little bit from time to time, though, in his speech. Joining us to uh, assess uh, what was said last night and how it was said, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Uh, first off, i got to ask you right off the bat, I was just looking at a CBS poll that was uh, released this morning. 74% said they liked what they saw from the president last night. Does that surprise you? Not at all. It was a good speech. And people always underestimate Trump's ability to communicate. Now, this was prompter Trump, the Trump that is obviously more controlled, and you need to test his speech and check it against any tweets that he sends out because sometimes it feels as though people are being gaslit a little bit. We hear one thing and then we see something else and, and you're not quite sure what the truth is. But from the delivery perspective, from the content perspective, the way that they leveraged very artfully all of the stories of the people in the room, the way that they tied past war heroes to his call to get out of Afghanistan. And I thought the best line was, great countries don't stay in endless wars. Uh, there was a lot of really powerful moments that seemed to really resonate. There were a couple of darker moments and a couple of unsuccessful moments, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into. But overall, I was not surprised at all by those ratings. And it has a very important impact on 2020. Uh, he 100% locked down the evangelicals with his portion on abortion that has never been said in quite that way or strong a terms ever in a state of the union. And you could see their reaction immediately. So he has just cemented himself to not have a Republican challenger, at least at this point. Uh, and I think that any Democrats running realized as they were sitting there that the 2020 re-election of Donald Trump is not necessarily a fait accompli, and it's also not something that they can take lightly. It's going to be a real fight. Well, and a number of pundits, I think, commented on that even before the speech started last night. Uh, and, as a matter of fact, Nicole Wallace on MSNBC was saying last night that uh, this is before he even stood up on the podium and said that this this is this, the State of the Union address is really just a big reality TV show. I mean, it's a television production, really. You know, with, with guests that are there, introductions that are written, etc. And she says he's right in his elements. So he, he, she anticipated he was going to do very well last night. Yeah, you recall when he did his first State of the Union, you had famously Van Jones uh, say he became our president or something to that effect. And he got huge backlash from the progressive left in the United States for looking as though one good speech within an environment that is totally staged would be enough to change a perspective on Trump. But here's the thing is that last night wasn't just about him being able to handle a reality show. It was also about the messages that he sent. He gave his base a lot of gifts. He gave people who are independent pause to think about some of what he was suggesting. Uh, and so there, there was a number of things in there. I think one of the things that 
will probably not work out as well for him in terms of a legacy from the speech is that he stood in front of a joint session of Congress and essentially threatened them, which has never happened in a State of the Union before, where he said, you know, if these investigations continue, then we won't have legislation. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but basically said to them, you know, we you can't investigate me and expect that we're going to get along, which to your point was the opposite of how he started the speech. So there were things in the speech that didn't play well, that won't play well. Uh, but in terms of making him look stable and making him look almost, almost you know, uh, affable and gregarious and warm, he's very good at that. He's, he's always been a charming salesperson. And I think last night he recharmed America. It's a reset point. It might be a reality show. And I love Nicole Wallace. She's, she's as smart as they come. But it is also a reset point if you do it effectively, and I think he just reset himself possibly out of some really bad poll numbers lately. Okay, but it, no, let's let's get to that other side, and let's look at it now through the prism of, of, uh, of credibility. Uh, how he said things, as you say, teleprompter Trump, we already know, can perform to this level, and, and clearly he, he did that last night, so on the surface you're going to get a very positive response. But when you start to actually drill down and look at some of the stuff that he said, the hypocrisy, uh, the hyperbole, uh, was just was just overwhelming at times, and maybe one of the most uh, poignant moments I thought last night, and again it goes to stage presentation as much as anything else, was when Trump was talking about how you can't get along in this country with the politics of division and the politics of revenge. That caught a standing ovation. But you remember the Nancy Pelosi hand sh- the, the the clap, which is I, I could be iconic now. That's one of the I think the burning memories that we got last night. She was pointing right at him, saying right back at you, buddy. Well, yeah, it's a clap back heard around the world. You know, it, it showed that she was she was listening to what he was saying. And obviously, how do you not applaud the thought of Congress finally working together? But the way that she looked at him with her eyebrow cocked up uh, and her hands pointed right at him, to your point, it was right back at you, buddy. But it was also uh, it was also uh, pretty intimidating. I mean, she is not to be messed with. And so she was looking at him as though to say, yeah, you're going to say that here in my house? Well, you better live up to it or I'm coming at you. I mean, it was very powerful. Another very powerful face in that whole, you know, in terms of iconic imagery coming out of this was AOC, the, the freshman or the fresh woman uh, congressperson who has a tremendous, tremendous following. And she refused to do this kind of political, polite, response. She was sitting looking at somebody that she really, really disagrees with fundamentally. And so she might have just been a coffee barista in New York City or wherever a few months ago, but now she's a congressperson with tremendous power. And when she was uh, attacked by Peggy Noonan, of all people, this morning for not, you know, looking warm and gracious, she said, why would I? You know, if anything, that would make me a hypocrite. I'm paraphrasing here, but what she's basically saying is she's a new generation of congressional leaders who are sitting there and they have very strong feelings about this president. So even though the stage show might have been good, there were some wonderful moving stories and he said some nice things, she was not about to give him an inch and to betray herself. And and I think that was very powerful, much like Nancy Pelosi. She was going to say, okay, I'll clap to that concept, but you better believe that I'm watching you. So both women showed, uh, I thought, tremendous power in the moment. 
Interesting camera angle. I mean, obviously, ninety percent of the shot uh, as we watched the thing last night on television is is the the direct shot right on where you see Trump, but behind him is Mike Pence, and over his left shoulder is Nancy Pelosi, and and the, you couldn't have had a better situation, I guess, for Pelosi in that situation, Laura, because you could see her reaction to everything he said. Like you say, the the cocked eyebrows, the the incredulous look, like here we go again when he started going on about the wall, and it mm-hmm. was it was almost like point and counterpoint all in the same camera shot. It was, and so you know. We make fun of Mike Pence for the elf on the shelf moment when he was with Pelosi and Schumer in, in the Oval Office of Trump, and he didn't move. And there was nothing. He, he has mastered the art of sort of expressionless staring into the distance and clapping on cue. So there's nothing interesting to see there. And it was really telling that when Trump brought up his big line about unity and he turned to Pelosi to see what she thought, and that's when she gave him the eyebrow uh, and the clap back because he, he has this real sense of... Um, it's almost not that she maybe dominates him, but she certainly has his attention, and she certainly balances up against his power as she should, as the leader, uh, you know, the Speaker of the House. It is it is supposed to be an equal branch of government, and she has checked him like nobody else has. And the fact that she was standing up there the second time as a woman leading the Speaker of the House, she is the most powerful woman on earth right now. If you look at it in terms of him being the most powerful person and that, that she is able to check his power. So I think all of us were watching. We're just mesmerized by what she looked at, how she looked at him, when she looked at him. And uh, and people will be parsing that for days. Well, and again, the, the, the facial expressions that you saw from Nancy Pelosi last night, I think underscored how a lot of people thought the, the speech was going and some of the hypocrisy there. I mean, here's, here's Donald Trump talking about the politics of division. And you look at some of the tweets he sent out about people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and so many others. Uh, and, and, you know, his idea of collaboration, to use, uh, I'm doing air quotes here, uh, the, his idea of collaboration is my way or no way. You know, if I don't get the money for the wall, then there's no negotiation. There's going to be another shutdown. Well, uh, so, and, and you could see that looking in, in Schumer's face through the course of the evening and certainly Pelosi's and others. Like, hey, you know what? Start talking the talk. Walk the walk, too, then. So all, all presidents use hypocrisy. They All presidents, all politicians, especially when they wax poetic or when they stand in the grand chambers and they act like everything is hunky-dory and America's all united, that's often not what's going on behind the scenes. Trump is no different. He's just way, way, way more obvious and over the top and and communicates constantly and has given us a Twitter feed into his brain, which we've never had access to before with the president. So those those moments really stand out. But there were others. You know, when he was talking about abortion and late-term abortion, I, you know, and how much you have to respect the life of these beautiful children. Okay, that good point. The evangelicals loved it. and also, though, there are children right now who are in cages that he's separated and, and reporting out that said that their policy of separating families at the border was meant to cause trauma. So, so I mean, that's a giant level of hypocrisy right there that we're looking at. So there were, there were a number of things that he was talking about and he was doing during the speech that made you just feel, I mean, there's one where he talked about sexual assaults and how these, these poor asylum seekers coming up, these women were getting sexually assaulted. And this is... This is the man who famously bragged about sexually assaulting women because he could. So there was so much of that, Bill, and I and I don't want us to become a nerd to it. Um, just because some other presidents have some hypocrisy with Trump, it is absolutely off the charts. 
And he's also charming. And people kind of let that pass by because they like some of these other things that he says and because they generally like to see somebody who's good at sales. And well, and he, he came back, yeah. He came back to one of his, you know, the classic talking points is, you know, first of all, there's a flood of people going over the border. We know that's not true. Those numbers have dwindled over the last five years. Uh, most people go in through the usual points at, of, of entry and simply don't renew their visas. That's where most of the illegal immigration is coming from in situations like this. Most of the drugs come in through the, the ports of entry, but he's got, he's creating this aura that it's all happening right here on the border, which is why you have to do something. And the people that are going to come across the border are going to rape your women and steal your jobs. And we know statistically, for instance, that that's just not true. That that immigration populations, uh, immigrants, actually have a lower crime rate than than the general population do. But it's it's almost as if he and his 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 group, his core audience, say, "Don't don't confuse me with the facts. This is what I want to believe." Absolutely, and and actually, Joy Reid said last night, I believe it was, that it's essentially the brown the brown scare. You know, she, she labeled it as that, this fear that brown people are going to take jobs and hurt your families. And, and he's never used those exact words, but that's sort of what all of this has been about um, between the Muslim travel ban and the, the border. And, and it's about saying to his base, white Americans who fear that too much change is coming, demographic shifts are coming, you know, globalization's coming, technolo- technological reboots of all the industries are coming, jobs are changing. I mean, there's a lot of fear there. And he's always stoked it and he's very good at that. And he'll say whatever it takes. And it takes people to say, hey, that's not true, that's not true. But may I say, where he also, one of the, you know, if we're looking for the axis of evil line in this speech, or if we're looking for that one state of the union line that's going to resonate and stick, it's the one where he said an economic miracle. Because not only by using the term miracle is he appealing to the evangelicals, but he's tying it into the economy. He's taking credit for things that have not been miraculous. There is no miracle. And in fact, Things that are working well in the economy are partly due to what Barack Obama set in motion, and some of his tax cuts are actually going to have a deleterious effect on the economy and probably promote recession. So there was a lot of white lies going on or lies going on around the economy, but that one line of an economic miracle is something they're going to ride all the way to 2020. And I think a lot of the Republicans out there who have been holding on to Trump, gritting their teeth, are going to look at that and go, okay, he's talking about the economy. Uh, we can work with that, even though they might not want to work with the whole racist border wall nonsense. Except that uh, that's yesterday. Today is today. Uh, they're going to get back to Congress, and uh, there's a deadline coming up. And uh, I, I've got the uneasy feeling it's going to be same old, same old. The euphoria of the the of the, the positive ratings he got last night, I think, are going to fade pretty quickly once he gets back on Twitter. Well, if he ends up doing a shutdown, they will. If it ends up that he says, you know, I didn't get my wall, and therefore it's not going to happen. I mean, look at just yesterday, leading up to the, uh, to the State of the Union, he said, if we don't get money for the wall, we'll have a human wall. You know, there's still the specter of a national emergency. And imagine, imagine if he declares a national emergency over a made-up crisis. What would prevent Kamala Harris or any other potential future president from saying, you know what, mass shooting guns are a national emergency, let's take them, or anything else, right? Or anything, climate is a national emergency. We're going to change our, we're no, no more, you know, no more coal sector. I mean, there's there's all kinds of different possible things that can happen, and which is interesting to watch, Bill, is Mitch McConnell. Uh, because he's an institutionalist, and he understands the risk of setting off this idea of using a national emergency for total partisanship and what that could mean if they don't retain power. So I think he'll be doing some pushback to that. So there's just really big, big stakes coming up the next week and a half. And you're right, these ratings might be good for the short term, and he'll take his victory lap, and he'll enjoy it. 
Uh, but if he shuts down government again or if he declares a national emergency and sets in motion something that they're going to regret for years, I think that his numbers will go back down to the historically lows that they've been for any president, which is the high 30s. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, as always, Laura, thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Be safe. You betcha. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, pundits and observers uh, down in Washington and right around the world, I guess, really, were uh, anticipating uh, the, the State of the Union address last night for a couple of different reasons. First of all, of course, uh, because of the partial shutdown that uh, took over a month now to finally get resolved and plummeting uh, popularity ratings for the president. Some people were saying, well, this has got to be a speech he's got to make uh, do well. It's got to be a comeback speech for him. Others were worried about credibility issues and uh, the way that uh, he has been handling issues like the wall and the shutdown and things of this nature. So a lot was on the line last night. So how does the speech rank among other president's speeches? Joining us to talk about this is Aaron Call, who is the director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor and co-author of Debating the Donald. Uh, first of all, Aaron, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, it's great to be back. I was just uh, mentioning a few minutes ago that the, the early numbers I've seen, especially the CBS poll, uh, had a 70% approval rating for uh, people that were polled last night about Donald Trump. Was that style over substance, or did they actually like what they hear, or was it just how he was saying it? Well, I'm always a little skeptical of you know, kind of those immediate push polls. Um, one thing being that most of the time the uh, fans of the president giving the address are more likely to tune in than, than not. But uh, even that, if that early data is correct, that's um, better than, than last year, uh, the, the early polls that were a little bit lower. So we'll have to wait a few more days or weeks to see if kind of uh, excitement from one night translates into a trend or something uh, market. But I, I think that the speech was somewhere in between you know, the other four major ones that he's done. Uh, certainly better than the inaugural address and the Oval Office address, um, but the his best speech overall was probably the uh, 2017 address to address. And is is so let's talk a little bit about the difference on the and, and some of these speeches and and you know the the differential I guess where a lot of people draw the line here is uh, are we going to get teleprompter Trump or are we going to get uh, you know tweeter Trump that's just going to go off the cuff off the time uh, he seemed to stick to the message that was on the teleprompter most of the night last night definitely um, he and he's been you know getting better and I think more adapting to the teleprompter he wasn't a politician before becoming president and it's taken him some time uh he's more likely to go off the rails a little bit during the rallies you know in front of a very partisan crowd with a even sometimes a longer speech but they had um extra time to work on this address because it was delayed a week and he had several speech writers doing it and so there were a very few moments that i think he may have briefly gone on but no extended rants or anything like that and and you're correct when he stays you know more disciplined then he usually uh, yields better speech results for him I'm sure that was a long discussion they had with uh, some of his staff about whether or not he was going to do that. He does have a propensity when he gets kind of wrapped up in himself and what he's saying to go off topic, and that's when he usually seems to get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, he's not always the most disciplined um, speaker, and you know what happens is sometimes he's a counterpuncher, and so if something happens unexpected, somebody kind of goes after him, he's just not going to sit there and take it. He's going to you know, fight back, and you saw that uh, during the debates, and and I think really the only instance where that would have happened last night, if there was, you know, audible heckling or kind of you know something really uh, out of bounds from the crowd, I could have you know see him 
mixing it up a little bit in there. But for the most part, the audience was respectful. Uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi sitting behind Trump was was able to do a good job of corralling um, her uh, a caucus that was in front of her, and he mainly stuck to the script. I did think some of his transitions between different issues were pretty awkward. Like he would go from paid family leave to then abortion to then military spending, and I think that that indicates that there wasn't just one person writing the speech. There were probably several factions that maybe have some different opinions and different ideologies. And so there was a, little, was a little bit disjointed in terms of the organization and the structure of the speech. I agree. I mean, some of those segues were rather incongruous, weren't they? I, I think that one you did mention, it went right from abortion, a rather graphic description of, of his take on, on what was going on with those laws that were passed. And then all of a sudden it, it morphed into military spending. And people just kind of, where, where, where are we going here? Yeah, I think part of the issue was, you know, starting with President Reagan in 1982, they they, the term Skutnik was invented of you know special guests that are supposed to bolster the agenda and, and kind of help the speech go along. And Trump's taken that to the extreme in the last two years, had about 15 of these guests. And he was better when he had kind of a theme in the speech that he had a guest uh, to support it. But then in places where there wasn't someone to you know immediately compliment that, that kind of caused you know several things to kind of go together and there wasn't enough um, spacing, or also maybe there just wasn't enough uh, depth to some of the things. I mean, you talked about fighting HIV and AIDS and wanting to spend money on it, but there really wasn't, you know, a detailed plan exactly how to do that. Same thing with the infrastructure spending. So when you have a lot of short bullet points, that's going to cause them to kind of all meld into one. Isn't this a, a little frustrating as, as a viewer, though, uh, to watch this? Because it's all, well, it is literally scripted. We know that, as was the Democratic response uh, from, from Stacey Abrams after that. But it, it's it's not as if it's point and counterpoint. In other words, they say, here's the Democratic response. It really wasn't a response. It was really just a, a 12- or 15-minute speech that they prepared ahead of time as well. Yeah, it's... Um and that's tough. It, you know, the response, everyone says, is the toughest job in all politics because you know, it's 10 minutes versus the president spent an hour and 22 minutes. And so it's physically impossible to rebut everything. Um, usually the, what, what I recommend is I think if you have 10 minutes to do the response, it should be maybe half or a little bit more than half pre-scripted. But then I, I would have advised Stacey Abrams to spend a few minutes at the end to you know, make some specific um, rebuttals to what she heard in real-time content, because you just don't want to have a canned speech to answer you know, a canned speech. You want to have your own talking points, but then also pick your, you know, pick the, uh, your spots and then try to maybe engage in a few of the most vulnerable or weakest spots of, of Trump's overall speech. Yeah, I think it was a, an opportunity missed because after that, I understand that all the the talking heads are all going to go back on the on you know the news networks after that and give their take on it. But uh, the, that larger audience is gone by then, isn't it? After that Democratic response, you know, the people that are like you know lean to the right there, they've gone to Fox News. The people on the other side have gone to MSNBC and CNN somewhere in the middle, and uh, so all they're going to do is hear talking points that are really simply going to substantiate what they already feel. Exactly, and that's another kind of criticism I have in general of some of these uh, President Trump's Union addresses. I feel that they're too long. Um, you know, there's so many choices that, that viewers have today in, in multitasking and busy lives and schedules, and, you know, to expect a viewer to stay an hour and 20 and then another 10 or so minutes is just not realistic. And President Reagan was masterful at giving 
uh, addresses like this that lasted for about 30, 40 minutes, which I think is a more ideal time frame to expect someone to commit to something like this. But, you know, when you double that or exceed that, it's likely that the viewers are going to turn out maybe somewhere in the middle of the speech as opposed to sticking around for the whole thing. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, it's the ratings for the speech itself could be 45 to 50 million, but the ratings for the response could be even less than a million. So there's a big disparity there, and that's why it's always the advantage with the bully pulpit of the presidency. What did you think about the choice of uh, Stacey Abrams to, to do the Democratic response? Uh, she doesn't re- technically hold office right now. Uh, not a high-profile member, although during the midterm elections, obviously, she was in the news an awful lot because of the the, the near election that she had as, uh, as governor of Georgia. Uh, but I'm sure there are others that would have loved to have been in front of that screen for 12, 15 minutes. i got about 25 of them, I guess, that want to run for president. Yeah, it's tough. It's, um, you know, it's a, a very difficult speech in general, and there have been several that have kind of dug their political graveyards by not doing very well. Um, you know, Bobby Jindal, Marco Rubio uh, received a lot of criticism, even last year, Joe Kennedy. And so it's it's tough. It's obviously a great opportunity, but the stakes are really high, and there's been a lot of errors and disappointments and viral memes, and so it's tough. I don't think you could have had any of the those that are likely or are currently declared running for president because those that have to determine who it is don't want to pick between them and, and you know, show favoritism or pick sides. The way that they pick it is that um, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer get together and basically alternate every year who gets to determine it. Last year was some from the House, this year it's from the Senate. I thought it was a good choice overall. I think that Stacey Edwards obviously lost, got some criticism for not conceding immediately, but she made that race in Georgia for the gubernatorial race much closer than anybody thought and really increased turnout amongst her base. And the Democrats are trying everything they can to persuade her to run for Senate in 2020 because they think if she uh, ran, she could win and potentially determine the balance of control of the Senate in 2020, but also uh, put Georgia in play uh, for the presidential election. If that were the case, that would make it much tougher for President Trump. So I think she did a good job, especially compared to some of the previous poor examples. No major gaffe. That's kind of always the first card to roll. It really increased her national profile. And if she does decide next month to run for Senate, this would be a big advantage and big kind of launching for that campaign. She did uh, refer to that, though, her reticence to actually admit defeat in that election. And, and, and of course, one of the subtexts of that whole story was voter suppression. Uh, that uh, was being uh, alleged uh, by, by by the guy that ended up winning the whole thing, but she she did touch on that, and I thought it was kind of a, a intricate line that she came up with there, saying that uh, democracy should be where voters select their politicians, not where politicians pick their voters, uh, which was obviously something I guess that just another little shot at what happened in the in the Georgia election, but uh, they they certainly take that advantage, don't they, to get their political point across. Yeah, well, I think for her, she had received a lot of criticism you know, for not immediately conceding, taking a long time to do so. There are obviously some very hard feelings uh, left from that race, and you know, she thought that she wasn't given a fair shake and that if you know, everyone who wanted to vote could have, that maybe she would have uh, won in a narrow race. And so I think that was something she used this major platform opportunity she had to kind of clean that up, and if she does decide to run for the Senate, um, you know, that's at least try to blunt a criticism that is kind of been made of her that she's a sore loser and probably never totally erased it, especially from you know, one of the more partisans, but thought it was at least smart to try to address that, given that would be one of her vulnerabilities going forward if she runs. Aaron, back to substance, if we could, for just a second, because uh, the, the fact-checkers wrote, of course, right after the speech, 
uh, you know, about some of the things that Trump included in the State of the Union address and saying, well, that's just not true. That's not true. That's half true. And, and on it goes. Are we becoming numb to that? Do we just expect that there's going to be a, a substantial part of his stuff that's that's going to be of that ilk, that's, that's just not going to be factual? Yeah, I mean, especially with President Trump. I mean, the Washington Post and others, uh, PolitiFact, have these fact-checking things, and, you know, they've documented in two years of office thousands of them. And so at some point you kind of become numb. And also, you know, certainly uh, the supporters of those, who are fact-checked kind of just, you know, believe it's fake news or don't think there's an agenda of the people doing it. So you're really never going to convince them. Um, you know, there's then there's always there's a great line with some of those things. Obviously, in a prepared speech like this, you want to present yourself in the best manner. And sometimes you may, you know, shade the truth, but not to kind of be a, a total outright lie. And, and also, during the speech, you know, the speech is unfiltered. People stick around for part of the speech, the whole speech. But when the speech concludes... Most of the people aren't sticking around for the fact-checking. The fact-checking is not happening in real time. So um, they, just like the Stacey Abrams speech, it gets a much uh, smaller audience. And so people in, in during the speech think the president did a good job. And because he's the president, are willing to you know, kind of uh, believe him and give him slack. Um, the, it's, well, it's nice to have the fact-checking in the end. It's not kind of reaching a lot of people that saw the speech and so it won't change their opinion of what they saw uh, originally. There's one element. I, I, I got the sense in the last maybe third of the speech that Trump was really trying to play to his base. That's, that's when he got in the issue of abortion and the border wall and, and the, the alleged crime by, by people that are, are there illegally, etc. But he also made a statement that I thought kind of came out of left field where he uh, just said, he said, America will never become a socialist country. And then everybody started to jump up and down. I th- obviously, it, given the political turmoil that's going on in South America right now, I can, I can understand why that's in the news. But it, it's almost as if he's defining exactly where he's going to be and where the Republican Party is going to be. And it's going to be to the far right. And anybody who isn't uh, with them is going to be uh, labeled as a socialist. Yeah, I mean, kind of socialist is becoming a buzzword in you know, American politics, uh, especially with the far left, the Democratic Party. Um, you know, people like uh, Bernie Sanders and um, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, almost in some ways embrace that or don't mind that label, but it, it has a negative connotation still um, in the uh, United States. And so I think they kind of like to use that as a, a buzzword and, um, you know, have it be a synonym for someone that wants to have totally government-imposed health care, um, you know, pri- pri- uh, privatization and um, loss of freedom, increased taxes up to 70% or something like that. So it's it's something that probably scores well and, and definitely does work. And so they're, um, you know, like you said, though, you're, you're doing a real contrast. Either you can be really far right or really far left. I think most of the country is in the middle and would like people that uh, – you know, are a little bit more nuanced and compromised, but really the there's not that choice currently right now. The people have to make a decision, and normally it's it's pretty far to one end of the spectrum. And third parties, independent candidates, don't have a very good shake to get into major elections just because of the you know two party system. So that's I think why um, the you know, nominees and also in primaries, people really are uh, pressured to go to the ideological extremes. The politicians are, even though. The majority of the country is not there. They kind of force them to, to, to choose maybe sometimes between two bad options. Aaron, given what news cycles are like these days, uh, obviously there's a buzz about this, and as we mentioned, some some rather positive uh, initial uh, response to to the way that Trump delivered the speech last night. How long is this going to last? Is the, does the glow fade pretty quickly? I mean, once they get back to business and they start debating about whether or not there's going to be a shutdown? 
Yes, and that's something that's changed recently. I'd say previously the glow used to last, say, several days, maybe up to a week after. Um, presidents were smart about it, too. They would uh, frequently schedule travel uh, to build upon themes from the speech. So sometimes they traveled somewhere where they need infrastructure repaired or a President Trump could have, if he wanted to, gone to somewhere on the border, uh, you know, where he wanted to build a wall where there's maybe a problem with immigration. But there's none of that here. And in the world of Trump and social media and Twitter, you know, by the end of this conversation, these, the, the, the union may be moot because of, you know, some kind of major uh, uh, tweet that Trump sent or some kind of uh, uh, uh development in one of the many investigations and scandals that he's involved with so so no i think that was something that happened uh more frequently several years or even decades ago but now especially in the trump presidency we'll probably be on to a different topic by sometime later today it's, it's almost as if for about two and a half hours uh, yesterday in washington uh, reality was suspended and everybody was was there in the capitol building but now it's it's back to, to reality back to real life yeah, especially because during the hour or the time that Trump is there, he, he can't tweet. And so at least you know there's not going to be anything to his 50, 60 million followers that occur during that time. And and still, there, there's a run-up to it, does get consumed by it in the in the days in advance, the preparation that's done, and, um, you know, usually then the night after. And but, but, you know, certainly, if not by the end of this week, you get to the weekend. And, and as you mentioned, there's... Deadlines and things coming up. Uh, there may be another uh, partial federal government shutdown by February 15th. The president may declare an emergency declaration and take money from other places to build the wall. So there's a lot of things on, on the burner that may uh, develop in a very short time um, that'll, that will take this uh, take over this. And there won't be much talk about this issue until the next year, January or February, when it happens again. Yeah, we can. Well, we can pick them as you mentioned. There's the Mueller investigation. There's the uh, the shutdown possibility. There's uh, the investigation now into the Trump inauguration committee. So on and on it goes. Never dull, is it? No, that's the as long as the president, President Trump is the, the, the state of the union is never going to be. It's always going to be unpredictable. Uh, that is for sure. And yeah, the day of the cycle feels like a, a year, kind of aging in, in dog years. But uh, no, that's and that's part of the reason is his base elected him. They wanted him to shake up the establishment and be different and be an agent of change. And so that this was certainly not unexpected for it to be like this. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, when the voting happens again in 2020, what the people that voted for him the first time with that goal, what they think about how the past few years have been and whether they want to continue with that or try something new themselves. Aaron Call. Aaron, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. Anytime. Thank you. Okay. Of course, from uh, University of Michigan. And uh, author of an uh, interesting book called Debating the Donald, which, by the way, Donald debates himself sometimes, obviously, when he comes up with contrary points, as he did a few times last night. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. To go back to the uh, State of the Union for just a couple of seconds, uh, Donald Trump didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about international trade and trade deals. He did reference China a few times. Uh, Canada got mentioned, I think, once uh, when he talked about, uh, well, the New Deal, the USMCA deal. Uh, and how unfair the old NAFTA deal was, and uh, that there's a new deal, and he's he sort of, in a half-hearted way, encouraged Congress to pass the USMCA deal. Uh, I, I, it was hardly a ringing endorsement the way he proposed proposed this whole thing, but it it made you wonder about just how dedicated this government is, uh, meaning the U.S. government, to actually getting that deal in place, and uh, well, what the chances are of that actually happening, and the implications. 
Uh, to that end, we bring uh, Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. Doing just fine. I, I just, from what I've read and some of the things I've heard from some of the, the folks in Congress uh, over the last couple of weeks since uh, the Democrats have taken over, and especially in the House of Representatives, uh, if, if Trump was sincere about wanting Congress to pass this uh, USMCA trade deal, I, I don't get a chance or th- or think that it's going to happen anytime soon. There don't seem to be any rush to do anything about it. I agree with you. Um, I did watch the entire State of the Union um, address last night, hour and 20. I've watched every State of the Union um, since Richard Nixon, whether Republican or Democrat, all the way through the years. You know, all the Reagan speeches and all the Clinton speeches and the Obama and so forth. Um, because they're fascinating documents. I know it's a political theater, but at the same time, they are, you know, they're, it's their one time of the year to do the big picture and say, this is everything we've done, and this is where we want to go, and this is why I'm so wonderful. And um, I was struck in last night's State of the Union address that he spent so little time on NAFTA, the new NAFTA, uh, because it had occupied so much time in the first, in the last year, the last 12 months, number one. Number two, it is still an enormously important trade agreement. And thirdly, I thought he was going to trumpet it because it appeals to so many of the issues that are not only popular with rank and file in the in the Rust Belt states, but it takes the wind of the sails of, the, of quite a few of the Democrats who were very critical, people like Bernie Sanders um, and, and other candidates, uh, other senators and congressmen who were very critical of NAFTA. And he ended up, if you will, stealing their, their, their lightning, stealing their storm, in, uh, because he addressed many of their issues, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. So I would have thought that would have uh, uh, called for more, um, uh, more emphasis last night, and uh, he, I don't think he spent more than a minute uh, on it. Yeah, that yeah, was about 60 seconds, I thought, yeah. yeah. Out of an hour and 20 minutes, you know, so it, I thought this is, there's something strange going on unless he's decided immigration is is going to be much more salient as a vote getter uh, rather than trade agreements now that it's it's been addressed well and to that end we also know that of course with the election coming up next year they they're trying to set the tone for that and he he knows immigration is a winner for him i'm not so yes. sure if he, he even has a, 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 a much of more than an elementary understanding of what trade agreements are all about he seemed to be lost an awful lot of the time during the negotiations yes. that were going back and forth so uh, but but to that point, though, Ian, I, I, and you've watched all of these, as I have over the years, uh, I, I got the sense from last night's speech that uh, there were probably about six or seven different people that made contributions to that speech, and there, the, the segues from one topic to another weren't very good. It was almost as if, okay, here's the page about immigration, yeah. uh, here's the page about trade, just get, get through that and move on to the next thing. You're right. I mean, the, uh, having said that, I mean, I agree with that, but let me just step back for a moment. I uh, and and uh, I was stunned listening to it because I expected him to do the you know the usual you know the bombast and the insults and the attacks and so forth, and I've got to be very blunt. I mean this uh, and Frank, I thought this was the most presidential I've ever seen Donald Trump. He was actually moderate. He wasn't insulting groups, insulting. He wasn't insulting Mexicans. He wasn't insulting women. My goodness, at one point, he had the Democratic Congresswomen in white standing and applauding when he was shouting out to the, or, or you know, celebrating the fact that there are now more women elected to the Congress than ever before. And, and so, now, having said that, <laughs> he was coming across as very moderate, very conciliatory, but at the same time, he was 
sugarcoating a little bit, uh, but not dropping the really edgy stuff, the really controversial stuff, specifically, of course, the wall and reforms to immigration. So it was a very, I thought it was a very clever speech. I mean, I, I think if he had been talking like this for the past two and a half years, he would not be in the hot water he is with so many different people. Because I've long argued it isn't so much his policies that bother people, that get people really, really, really angry. It's his demeanor, it's his language, it's his rhetoric, you know, in insulting Muslims and uh, women and Mexicans and Latin Americans. And, and I thought, if you know, if he had talked like he did last night in a much more moderate, calm, centrist, presidential way, he probably would not be mired at 30 or 30, 35% support in the polls, and he probably wouldn't have as many enemies. But that's teleprompter Trump, and we don't get to see him very often. You're absolutely right. This is He was scripted last night. Yeah. You're right. There were maybe six or seven. The, this speech was written by speechwriters. I mean, every State of the Union pre, uh, address is because it's so long. And he was reading it off the teleprompter. You're absolutely right. And I've actually read, not, not about this one, but I uh, read uh, by former speechwriters about the process that's involved. And apparently it's really something. They start writing it four months before, and they consult with people in every government agency that's ever that's mentioned in the speech and they fact check it up and down and left and right and and uh, so it's a it's a major major production and and uh, and so I thought it was very well written in the sense of each discrete subject but you're right the segue as they shifted from one theme or one policy topic to another was rather abrupt it was rather choppy and uh, but within that conversation within when he talked about immigration, he said, you know, Americans support immigration. They support illegal immigration, not illegal immigration. And I thought that he was he was doing I thought he was um I, I thought he was the most effective last night that I've ever seen Donald Trump. And I'm not saying this to be a, ch a cheerleader for Donald Trump. I'm not. I, I strongly disagree with many of the things he said. But just being an analyst and looking at it analytically, I thought that he was far more effective because he, there was no bombast last night. Uh, all of that, you know, the cheap shots were, were gone um, overwhelmingly. And, uh, and so I thought he was more effective, uh, and maybe he should just keep his mouth shut, except read from the teleprompter, and stop tweeting. And maybe, you know, he could reduce uh, a lot of the problems he, he faces. But, uh, I mean, having, as I said, though, he, he didn't steer away from the red meat issues, you know, the shout-out on late uh, banning late-term abortion and, of course, the wall. Uh, those are really, uh, those are for the, for the base. And, uh, and, and so that remained in there. But, you know, he kept emphasizing, you know, bipartisanship and we have to have comedy and we have to have unity. And I thought, my God, is this Donald Trump talking? <laughs> no, it's not. It, it, those are the, the, those, those, that was his lips moving. Those were his lips moving, but That's those right. were not That's his right. words. We all know That's, that. Which, no, which is right. why you got that cynical look from Nancy Pelosi over his left shoulder most of the night. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we see yeah. the tweets, Mr. President. We see yeah. what you say to us in the Oval Office. Exactly. You know, you, you can talk all you want about unity and collaboration, you know. But, you know, start walking the walk. Exactly. No, no, no. I, I, uh, I'm not trying to suggest that this is a new Donald Trump. I'm saying if he had, uh, you're, so I agree with you completely. In fact, CNN, who is probably the most uh, savage critic of the president, said last night in, on their website, they said, if you had just come in from Mars and hadn't been following American politics for the last three years, and you just listened to this speech and nothing else of Donald Trump, you would think he was the most moderate centrist president of the last 50 years. That's how, how it, uh, jarring it was, because 
it's, it was completely contradicted by everything he said in the last two and a half years in his impromptu press conferences and, of course, in his tweets. And this is probably, this will be studied, this presidency will be studied years and years from mm-hmm. now. And I think one of the pre- lessons is presidents should not be writing their own tweets. They should be, contro- that should be controlled very carefully by the spin doctors. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, again, just to, on background, when he, when he, I, I was surprised that he didn't spend more time on the USMCA deal, because like you say, uh, this was the chance for him to kind of beat the drum and say, hey, you Wisconsin farmers, look what I got for you. Hey, you auto workers in Ohio, look what I got for you. He didn't go there. I, 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 and those those states especially, Ian, were very, very important yes. to him getting elected in the first place. You're right. And, and let me go one step further. It would have been so easy to say, to flip the critics, to turn them around, I mean, when I say flip them, and say, all of you people who are hammering me on what I'm doing with China, with the tariffs and so forth, it works. See, I did that, he could have said. I did that on NAFTA with the Canadians and the Mexicans. And look, we've got this wonderful new deal. I mean, I don't think the new NAFTA is any, that there's not a huge improvement over the old NAFTA. I think it's just some fine-tuning and tinkering, but that's not, that's just me talking. Let's set that aside. He could have used the success of the new NAFTA to justify what he's now trying to do on China and say, look, trust me, follow me, back me up. I'm taking you to the promised land. I'm going to have the Chinese, stop the Chinese from cheating after 25 years. I'm going to make sure they stop stealing our property. I mean, he could have really, I think, closed the deal, so to speak, in in communicating why he's doing what he's doing on China by invoking what he did do with NAFTA, but they didn't do that segue. They didn't connect those dots. Which I thought was surprising. It, uh, because, yeah. you know, when you get a victory like that, you're supposed to be able to trumpet that at the State of the Union, exactly. Trump, and he just didn't seem to take advantage of that. Exactly. And, and and to your point, I, I kind of get the sense sometimes that the, the U.S. has kind of moved on and said, yeah, we negotiated that. Now they're fucking focusing on China. I mean, Lighthizer and, and Wilbur Ross are spending time talking with the Chinese. There doesn't seem to be very much in the way of any discussion going on between Canada and the U.S. now. I agree with you. Um, I think the American focus has now shifted um, completely to China. I mean, I, I again, I, I'm just giving, I'm sort of jumping back and forth my own personal interpretation versus just what's happening. But I thought that there was uh, he made a big mistake in going after NAFTA in the first place because, contrary to what Trump said, it was the worst deal ever. I thought it was probably the single most successful trade agreement in modern history. And there's lots of data to back me up on that from the U.S. Department of Commerce, as well as think tanks and academic studies and so forth. By contrast, what's been going on since China opened up to the world after Deng Xiaoping uh, obtained power in 1993, and that's when China really did open up and, and turn to basically, sometimes it's been called Chinese uh, you know, communist capitalism. Uh, but that's when they started to take off, and then they joined the WTO and made all kinds of promises. They're going to be rule of law and, you know, respect all the trade, trade commitments in the WTO treaty. Of course, they didn't. And they've been cheating on a whole series of uh, dimensions, you know, on uh, currency they were cheating and wages, suppressing wages and subsidizing uh, state-owned enterprises and stealing intellectual property. And and so the big... The big uh, 
threat to the United States in trade was never Canada or Mexico. It was always this very unbalanced relationship with China. And it's not just Trump saying that. I mean, the Europeans have been saying that, although much more quietly, for a long time. And and so I I, I thought he made a, a, a big mistake in not going after China earlier, because that is, I mean, that is the, they're the two largest economies in the world. And China really is cheating. Canada was not cheating. Mexico was not cheating. You know, and, and so and maybe this is a belated recognition, the fact that he talked so little about NAFTA last night. And maybe this is a belated recognition that, you know, that they uh, were going down the wrong uh, rabbit hole. Or that he's just lost interest in it. Or that too, that too. It could be just, I mean, we don't get very much attention down there. I travel a lot of the states over my lifetime, and I read the local papers when I'm in the local city. I'm visiting with San Diego, New Orleans, San Francisco, whatever. And I assure you, <laughs> you can read the paper from front to back for five or 10 or 20 days, and you'll be hard-pressed to find the word Canada or Canadian ever appear. <laughs> they just don't talk about us. No, I know, and, and, and now you've got the Premier and the Economic Development Minister here in Ontario saying, you know, we've got to get back to the table and get rid of these tariffs. And the Americans have said, yeah, whatever. Uh, you know, exactly. Don't, don't, yeah, we'll call you when we're ready to talk. If they, I mean, what grabs American attention, of course, is um, you can be a small country. It's not that people say it's because Canada's small. Nonsense. There's very small countries that uh, Cuba, <laughs> Libya, when Gaddafi was in power. You can be a small country, but if you're a threat to the United States, that gets their attention really, really quickly. And and so if you are a threat to them or you are perceived to be a threat to them, you know, the southern border is very dangerous, you know, all those dangerous Mexicans, uh, then you will get their attention. But we're not a threat. And they know that. And, you know, the odd person can pop up and say, oh, there's people sneaking across the Canadian border into the States. But most Americans know that's a load of nonsense. There's no threat from Canadians. I mean, the only threat is, I suppose, I don't know, reindeer or moose invading them or something, you know, something. I'm being silly now. But but that's my point. I mean, Canadians drive across in a very orderly fashion across the border and line up at the border points, either in the airport or on in the road with their car. And I'm saying that because I've crossed both ways many, many, many times. And we're all very polite and, you know, the whole nine yards. There's no threat from the, I, I was actually stopped. Quick story, Bill. I was driving along upstate New York, right along the St. Lawrence River. Ottawa is 45 minutes from Ogdensburg, New York, and mm. the bridge from Prescott over. So I'm driving along Highway 37, and a border control car was there. And they stopped me for some, just doing a random check. And then I said, after I showed them my license and ownership, and I carried my passport, and, and I said, by the way, <laughs> and I was pretty convincing with them, so I didn't want them to beat me up or anything, but I said, you know, we come over legally, all of us. <laughs> we go through the border with our passport. Well, you have nothing to worry about us. <laughs> and uh, I don't think he appreciated it that much. He said, well, you know, we've got to worry about these risks, you know. And uh, There's no yeah. risks. There's, I mean, Canadians, hard, I mean, we just don't cross that border into the States. We, I mean, we cross the border, but we do it legally through the airport or, or driving across at a port of entry. So, they're not, so you know, they, they have a problem with illegal immigration, but it's not as, I don't think it's as uh, substantial as he has been, or as great a threat as he has been arguing. No, I don't think so either. Ian, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank Take you. Take care. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.